Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I explore the subject of fame by talking to people who've experienced it themselves and ask them how it has affected their own journey as well as the lives of those around them. My guest today is writer, broadcaster and publisher James Brown. James got his dream job writing for the enemy at just 22 years old. He went on to work as a features writer for the Sunday Times magazine before creating and editing one of the most iconic men's magazines of the 90s, Loaded. After leaving Loaded, James became editor-in-chief for British GQ before going into the world of publishing, public speaking and television and radio presenting with shows on Bravo and TalkSport, amongst others. In 2016, James wrote his first book, Above Head Height, A Five-A-Side Life, which was an Amazon number one bestseller, and he's since gone on to become editor of 442 Magazine and a travel and lifestyle writer for The Telegraph. An amazing career with so much to talk about, so I'd like to give a huge, almost famous welcome to James Brown. James, how are you, mate? Great, thank you. I was 18 when I started writing for the anime, just to correct that. Uh, I saw in I in my in my research I saw in an article that it said twenty two. I was going to ask what did you what did I uh, get wrong in your intro and you beat me to it. What else What else did I not, did I miss out on, James? Well, no, that sounded pretty good. I thought that sounded good. The um, I think the thing with well, that thing with ages, um, nobody ever really understood my age anyway because I because I was successful early on in, in publishing. Uh, people assumed I was a lot older than I was, but I was actually, I was writing for the enemy when I was like 19 and sounds then, and then I became the staff writer for the enemy when I was 21. So, you know, I was sort of from a very early age, I was around a lot of famous people really, which was interesting. Yeah. And you, you say people kind of got your age wrong or didn't kind of uh, get a gauge for how old you were. Was that also a result of you, being mature beyond your years or or not so much no not at all I was really immature I mean I didn't when I it was it was the opposite I was sort of achieving it initially ahead of my years and um you know when I was first in London picking up publishing and, and journalism awards I had to borrow my girlfriend's brother's uh shirt I didn't have a I was you know I was picking up these awards in my early 20s I didn't I didn't have a shirt and a tie or anything like that. I was wearing just T-shirts with bands' names on them. And, um, you know, so it was, no, I think people thought I was older than I was, but I was certainly much more immature than even my age was anyway. You know, I didn't didn't shave till I was about 24 or something. I just looked like a little kid, which, which actually, you know what, that actually helped me because... A lot of the a lot of the new bands that emerged, and that I was, you know, writing about and championing people like uh, the Happy Mondays, the Charlatans, Popoli itself, the Stone Roses, people like that. We were all the same age, and uh, which meant they were very relaxed with me being around. It, it wasn't like it was an you know an older person coming to grill them. Uh, so I think that benefited me on certainly, you know, and. Would you say then, because I'm intrigued about your music writing career, because my my dad was, uh, well, my parents are both musicians. My dad was uh, head of uh, publishing at A&R, uh, Chrysalis, uh, head of A&R Chrysalis. My mum was a singer. My brother was in a band in the 90s. Would you say that you got into music journalism because there was a big part of you that wanted to be a musician yourself and that was another route in? No, absolutely not. It was... Um... 
when I was, you know, when I was, I'm just writing a book at the moment, you know, which is subtitled Music Mayhem and Magazines, I think. And, uh, you know, when I was really young, there were occasionally things I didn't want to hear going on in my house. And I spent quite a lot of time lying on the floor in the late 60s with my face on the carpet listening to the records that my mum and my dad had, which luckily were really good records. So, and, you know, this hasn't been edited for taste. They were uh, Lazy Sunday, The Small Faces, um, I'm the, I Am the Walrus, The Beatles, which Lady Madonna, which is on the other side, Satisfaction, I had a Stones album. Um, I got Stung by Elvis Presley, Judy in Disguise. And at the same time as I was listening to them, I was listening to the Camberwick Green album. That's kind of how young I was. And Tommy Still singing Little White Bull. And they all, most of those songs sounded the same to me, quite magical and childlike in a way. And really, that was where my love of music started. And then, you know, I just think I was very lucky in terms of the key ages in my life. Music was going on, you know, as I became eight, nine, ten, you know, was when glam rock was 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 about. And every week, you know, you'd be looking at somebody on top of the pops, whether it was Sweet or uh, particularly Mark Boland, T-Rex, uh, Slade, I was a big fan of. These guys just looked amazing and they made music that I that I loved and that I found really exhilarating. And, you know, I, I would get, high, you know, get a high from it, get a sense of excitement from it. And then by the time I was in my early teens, it was punk and new wave. And then, you know, about 1978, 79, uh, Two-Tone came out. So all through my childhood, there was just this brilliant conveyor belt of fantastic music. And and that's what inspired it. I I was in a band, but we were just we were. It was the opposite of what you said, really. I, you know, I I wanted to work for the NME. I picked up fanzines and then and music papers, and I I just I liked how they felt. I liked the fact that particularly in the NME that people were very opinionated. I liked the way the papers looked, um, and. I just had an attraction to it. I don't know what it was. I like the fact that the enemy covered things like CND and the Right to Work March alongside interviewing the bands that I loved, which would be like the Jam or the Undertones, the Specials, Buzzcocks, people like that, the Beat Specials. And it just seemed to be, those publications seemed to be a gateway into the world that I loved. And, you know, the band that I had, we had opportunities to do things that would have furthered our career and I turned them down you know Andy Andy uh, Kershaw saw us we were quite popular in Leeds and uh, Andy Kershaw saw us play one night and asked if we wanted a Radio 1 session and I said no it, it's not serious for me give this guy a session and he said who is he I said this is a guy called David Gedge he's in a band called A Wedding Present right and literally with literally like that David was next to me and I said there's they're going to be a good band. Me and my mates are just messing around, even though we were we were quite popular and we were quite like half man, half biscuit or somebody like that, just messing around with word, song, you know, words and titles and um, and then we also got offered a support slot at the Clarendon at Sonic Youth and in London and I turned that down and I just knew that I couldn't sing very well, but I thought I could maybe write about bands. And I, I, I guess I was more realistic, you know. I, I think if I could have sang, maybe I would have been able to, to front a band. But um, no, I didn't want to be a musician. I think it's quite rare for someone so young and passionate to also have a sense of realism about that stuff. Also, I'm intrigued to know whether, um, you know, you've said you were in a band, you wanted to write about bands, you were hanging out with bands already at that point, obviously in terms of David and the wedding present and stuff. Was there an element to you seeing the possibility of writing for the enemy, writing about music as a way into that kind of potentially hanging out with famous people, the famous lifestyle, changing your life in that kind of social dynamic? It, it, it actually was, again, it was, the, it was a little bit of the opposite. It wasn't necessarily a way in. It was, I needed a way out of where I was. I, I lived in a, I grew up in Headingley in Leeds, which is now 
most well known really for being a student area. But when I was growing up, it was best known really for the cricket ground where the test matches would be played and Yorkshire would play. And then also the Yorkshire Ripper was killing people in the areas that I kind of went to school and, and shopped and so on. And there was, you know, there was a huge unemployment. I didn't, this sounds kind of strange, but when I left school, Barney, I didn't know anyone had a job. I knew one guy who's worked in his dad's greengrocers, but nobody, there were genuinely were no jobs. And so I would hitchhike around the country. I'd go to places like Liverpool, Manchester, Hull, uh, down to Sheffield, sometimes down to London. And I would sell my little fanzine that I, that I, that I published myself. And and that what was your fanzine called? It was called Attack on Bazag, which was a spoof of those um, pulp Second World War books that Sven Hassel wrote, and uh, it was just, you know, it was a thrown together, self-published, self-folded, and self-stapled and self-sold little publication. But what I realised was that. That would be the route to go places better. And when I was about, you know, I left the, I left school before I finished my A-levels and I was just kicking around on the dole, you know, and there was the instant cultural opportunities that exist because the internet now weren't there. And I didn't, like, have an older brother with a great record collection or anything. And my dad gave me a couple of books. He gave me the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And then he gave me the New Journalism, which is a compilation of New Journalism. And then I think he gave me Hell's Angels. Or no, maybe I picked up The Great Shark Hunt by Hunter Thompson. So it was those writers which I read when at the same time I was doing my little fanzine that made me think, oh, maybe it'd be They seemed attractive and glamorous. And their writing was so exciting. Um I had no interest in pursuing further education. I, you know, when the teacher said, why don't you just knuckle down and get your A-levels and go to university? I was already going to universities to sell my magazines. I saw what the lifestyle was like, and I thought I could get a better one by being a writer. I only really wanted to go to university to play football or meet girls, and I could do that anyway. Um and I mean, you're an, entre- you're an entrepreneur from a very young age, basically, James. Oh, skin. I was totally, I was genuinely skin. I mean, because I was bright and my parents were bright, you know, I didn't grow up in a rich family or anything. But people assu- sometimes assumed I was from public school or something. And I was very lippy and confident because I just, um, you know, I kind of believed what Johnny Rotten was saying. And I, you know, that the, the past, were, it felt like you had, you know, what The Clash were writing about, what the Paul Weller was talking about. You know, when you're kind of 12, 13, 14, and you're getting a sense of alienation naturally anyway from the generation above you to have all of that brilliant polemic pumped into you, that's what inspired me and that's what shaped me. And um, so by the time I reached London and I was writing for Sounds, I just had this tremendous momentum. I had a great contact network of contacts of bands, underground bands around the country. I'd hitchhiked to places like I'd been to Holland and Berlin and I'd been all over Britain with these bands. I knew all of these fanzine writers and the enemy offered me a job after I'd written six covers in seven weeks for sounds. And, um, it just was, that was the only job I wanted. I wanted to be the editor of the NME. That was the, uh, first of all, I wanted to be a writer on the NME. And I I used to pick the Guardian up every Monday. That's when the media jobs were and read it in the newsagents. And then Wednesday and Thursday, I'd pick up Sounds and NME and get frustrated because they never had the newer bands that I was into. By 83, 84, a lot of the bands I liked from the punk and new wave era had all had kind of like, stopped playing really or stopped recording or they'd split up and um, the younger underground bands weren't getting much coverage. So that meant that when I finally got the door open to me, it was just all there for the taking. You talk about it so articulately um, that it feels like so normal, like it seems so normal to you that you would have that goal and that you would 
have the confidence to just batter down the doors and and keep working towards this goal at that young age but i think for a lot of people it's it seems very rare to me that to have i mean other than like the obvious you and i both play football so i'm sure we both wanted to be footballers but other than that unrealistic goal to have something that you have to that is achievable and to chase and to get there is incredibly impressive to me well there was actually quite a a few NME writers that had been based in Leeds and in Yorkshire as students. So the NME had Lucy O'Brien. She reviewed my, she did the, she did the first review of my fanzine in the Leeds student. It said, James Brown is a vocal local lad going places. And Stephen Wells was a, a sort of ranting poet known as Seething Wells. He started writing for the under, the enemy under the name Susan Williams and then became a very popular writer on the paper as Swells. Uh, Don Watson was a staff writer. There was a guy in Sheffield called Amrick Rye. So in that respect, it was tangible. There were these people I would see at gigs who I knew were writing reviews. And then there was a guy that I knew from Sheffield called Chris, sorry, from York, who I'd met on a demonstration, a CND demonstration, and he was in a band called the No Swastikers, and they became kind of socialist skinhead group called the Redskins, and he got a job on the enemy. So none of these people helped me in any way, but, you know, but they were, it, it just meant that it didn't seem like something that was ungettable. I, I figured if they could do it, and they were all a bit older than me, that maybe... I could just bludgeon my way in. And the first thing that I, the second thing I ever had printed in the enemy was a review of my own band, right. which that obviously, that obviously didn't go down well in Leeds where all the other bands wanted desperately to get in the enemy. Yeah. But that was funny. That gave me a degree of infamy and it kind of, that put a stop on my enemy career for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, I can kind of imagine that. Um, just to skip forward, we will go back to uh, some of these days as well, but just to skip forward, because this is a question that I like to ask all of my guests at the beginning. Um, are you famous, James Brown? Do you think you are famous? No. I think uh, I was definitely famous 20 years ago. Um, mm. And does that, not, does that not mean that to a certain demographic, you're still famous? Yeah, I mean... I think the last time I was anywhere near famous was when I was hope uh, from a particular demographic was when I was co-hosting the warm up, which was a Saturday morning football program that was just madness and chaos. It was like I mean, it was like nothing else on Talk Sport, and uh, that was with Johnny Vaughan fronted that and. When that became popular, going to football matches again was very similar to when I went to football matches when I edited Loaded, and that it would be constant people coming up throughout the match and before and at half time telling me how much they loved the show. So that that was probably the last time. But of course, that was on the radio, so it would only be people who might have known what I looked like from social media or anything. I mean, going back to the nineties, then yeah, I was very visible and on television a lot and in the papers and um but it was really you know that hadn't been my intention my intention i always thought that the magazine was the star really because the magazine was the saw away success i felt like i'd already had a degree of success in publishing at the nma um so it felt like second time around professionally for me when i did loaded but what the big difference was suddenly you know I would be in supermarkets people stare at you and I wasn't well known enough that they would instantly know who I was but people would look at me and think I know who that guy is which is it's quite weird because normally people stare at you because they fancy you or they go and have a fight with you you know so that thankfully the latter didn't happen the former occasionally happened but so you know and the definition of fame I guess would be you know, the best way to describe it is people just want things from you all the time. Um, they want you to come to their event. They want you to pay you to do certain work. They want to associate you with whatever they're doing. And, you know, I remember we run an interview with David Bar uh, David Beckham when I was editing GQ, and he, he said, every room I, I go in, 
somebody wants something from me. And, you know, I think for those people that are world famous, it's just, it's never ending. And, um, but that is certainly the difference. I, I walk down the street now, nobody gives a fuck. I mean, you know, it doesn't, and it's, it, it's better. I like it. I prefer it, to be honest. It's, um, yeah, yeah. What, what, what was, what was the, because you've, you've gone into how you got to the enemy. And then, you know, as I said in the intro, you, you created Loaded. I'm intrigued to know what was the, you know, what was the the link? How did you get from being a writer at the enemy or the editor at the enemy to creating a magazine? And then most importantly, in terms of uh, relevance for this podcast, how did you then become almost like the face for the magazine that you created to then become a famous person in your own right? Well, I became the editor of Loaded because I didn't become the editor of NME. I, I'd left in a half. Oh, I see. I'd left in a, not a big huff, but I was a bit disappointed that when I was 25, they didn't interview me for the editorship when it arrived. And so I left a few months later. And then a year after that, the guy that had given the job to had left. So they came back to me and said, will you come back? And we had a conversation. Then they didn't give it to me again. <laughs> oh my so, God. But in that, in that, in that interview process, I just did two interviews. They said, if we don't give you this, would you like your own magazine? I went, yeah, definitely. So I went back and said, I want to edit a magazine that is like Arena, if it was edited by Hunter Thompson. And I want to uh, interview people that are hot and dangerous and up and coming. Uh or knackered and past it with brilliant stories. And I want it to be about football and music and clubbing. And I want it to create generational tension with the other magazines. I mean, they're, they're all direct lines of what I put down at the time. And so that was um, late 2002. And it took about 15 months of you know working in a development room till, till it came out. I think it's quite amazing to show how big the NME was at that time that the idea you know you're applying for a job as the editor of the NME but the other option almost like the plan b is having your own magazine I feel like you know in any other with any other publication other than the NME the idea of having your own magazine would automatically be better than editing that magazine yeah the, the thing the strange thing was when you talked about being wanting to be a footballer that is what I wanted to do and um you know, I was quite a good player, but I was very skinny. And I knew very early on that I wasn't going to become a professional player. I played with very good players who did become professional players. So I played to a pretty good school level standard. And the next thing I wanted to do was I thought I can't sing. So I wanted to be on the NME. And I got the job in, a, in, a, in an era when there were no jobs at all. To get the one job you want was very unusual. and. Um, you know, being a staff writer on the NME was like being the centre forward for England in, to, in that world. You know, if you've seen the film Almost Famous about Cameron Crowe, the Rolling Stone writer, that was my story. Only, you know, I wasn't in a long coach in the desert in California. I was in a, in a van in Leicester with a skateboard band called The Stupids or something. And, um, and I think... And, and you were a tiny bit older than, than the protagonist of almost famous how, how old was he he was 10 he was like 13 10 or 13 or something wasn't he? <laughs> he was about 15 cameron crow he was young but um you know i was a, i was a teenager when i was getting these first cover stories printed and um answer your second question yeah part of that question about why did i become recognizable as the face of a magazine was twofold one the absolute success of the magazine was so huge and so fast that the the, the media, after they stopped poo-pooing the idea that men would read a mass market lifestyle magazine, started writing about it. So my picture started appearing in a lot of national newspapers and international magazines like Newsweek and Vanity Fair and so on. And But also the key thing for me about Loaded Success was we didn't try to be better than the readers, and it, it was it was setting out to be inclusive, not exclusive. And and the magazines that had existed before, 
things like the face and blitz and arena they were very centralized around the soho cafe bar scene you know the kind of it was you know bar italia it was like it was this tiny sort of microcosm of it's just tiny focus on this this cool part of london that id and so on would write about and i wanted to write about what was going on in the country and so i banned the use of the word style and I made sure that it, it it felt like the readers could be a part of what we were. So we started putting lots of photographs of the staff in the magazine to show that we were just the same as the audience, really, you know. And and so you know, I became, I guess, visible in that way. Plus, my beautiful explosion of curly hair was quite identifiable. That that must have been the that must have been the main part. I read in some uh, articles uh, that you've been in whilst I was researching that you did have some kind of um, difficulties with IPC who ran the company. Was that in terms of having full creative control? Did they put some reins on you at different points? What you know, what was it like trying to create exactly what you wanted with people over you? Well, no, there were no problems. Uh, didn't see anybody from issue two onwards. Really, they uh, until. I chose to leave and it took a long time to get it launched. They were very nervous and, uh, you know, Loaded's been misremembered and my Loaded has been misremembered and, and, and history has been changed looking back on it. I've got the covers on a poster in front of me. You know, it wasn't the magazine that those magazines became, like Loaded became later and FHM and then Nuts and Zoo that followed them and Maxim. My covers had Roland Ritron, Uma Thurman, uh, Prince Nassim Hamid, Frank Skinner, Vic and Bob, uh, Kimberly from Neighbours, Sean Ryder, Gazza, Noah Gallagher, Will Carling, Madness, Sean Bean, you know, Kylie Minogue, Gary Oldman. How do you think people remember it, which isn't the, the way that it actually was? You think they remember it more as like a nuts and a zoo than it actually was? Yeah, because... The moment I left, that's what they turned it into. But I had, I had total control over what went in every month. And the editor at the NME when I'd been there was was my boss. And after this, pretty much after the third issue, when he saw that he, he, I think he was around for the first and the second issue, and then after issue three, Alan just let go and disappeared. And uh, you know, so. It was the frustration was that they they took the success for granted, and they didn't reinvest any of the money in the team, so none of us were particularly earning much money, and uh, given that they were making millions and millions a year, but no, it was, you know, there was I, I mean it was easier for me to spend four thousand pound on a load of plane flights than it was to give somebody a two thousand pound pay rise through the company. There were those sort of infrastructural frustrations, but um, we weren't in the main tower that IPC was in. We weren't in King's Reach Tower. We were in these little stable buildings with Marie Claire and Vox and 90 Minutes magazines, the football magazines, and then a dance magazine called Music. So we didn't have to go for a reception or, or, or any of the corporate stuff. We were just separate. So actually, you no, know, it was in that respect, it was fine. I mean, I wish they'd paid us more money, then I would have stayed there longer. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And looking back on that time, I mean... I, like we've discussed, I'd say that's the job that you're most well known for. And I've and I've read a few articles about some of the, you know, fun and hijinks and partying that happened there. Are there things that you do differently about Loaded as a magazine and about your time there? Or do you just look back on it all positively? That I would do differently again if I could revisit it. Sure. Uh... Well, I'm right researching this book... I'm reading some of the language and it's a different tone of voice as sort of 28 year olds than, than I have now as a 54 year old. I was quite surprised how often the word bird and booze appeared. Um, but I don't think, I mean, I'd have put less, I mean, they're just, the answer to that question is just about editing. I would use less features and give more space Uh uh, maybe there's a few covers I would have chosen, but no, I mean, they're just things like that. I, I guess the big thing would be whether or not I, whether I would have left because, you know, had I not left, had I not left, then Loaded would have continued for a long, long time if I'd been able to sort of let it grow old as I grew older. But I was just not in a good place. You know, I had a pretty hectic drug habit. I was drinking heavily and I was frustrated by my relationship with the company and uh, I was being offered all sorts of jobs. The chat show Channel 4 was commissioned for me to be called, you know, the James Brown show Saturday night and then I walked away from that. Why did you walk away from that? I just, I, to be honest, I just didn't think I could do what they wanted me to do and edit the magazine as well. It was Jeff Pope, who's now a really successful thriller writer and director with ITV. He works a lot. He's done a lot of big films. And uh, he wanted, he thought he could make basically the Larry Sanders show. And um, it was just going to be difficult to do that and do Loaded. And also, you know, a lot of these, I was approached about editing newspapers, about editing very high profile newspaper supplements. I was approached about going to other countries and do magazines. And the truth of the matter is I had a really bad cocaine habit. I mean, it was at that point, it was still pretty good. <laughs> and, <laughs> a pretty good, bad cocaine habit. Well, you know, it was still fun. It hadn't, I mean, later it, it ceased to amuse me as much as it had in those days. And so I stopped it, but the, um, I had a habit at that point, not a problem, but the habit was, was you, you know you could be a drug addict and work at loaded and there were three or four of us that were and there was a lot of very heavy drugs there not just white powders different color powders and um in that it, to come back to that question about whether they interfered we were pretty free to behave how we wanted to behave in the office and abroad on jobs we spent a lot of time in south america for for more than cultural reasons, you know, and <laughs> and we, I mean, I wanted that magazine to be like when I'd been to Brazil with the Happy Mondays. I wanted it to be like the books I read about the Rolling Stones at the end of the sixties and early seventies. I wanted it to be like being in a brilliant rock and roll band, and and 
and it was and um could loaded ever have been that kind of magazine unless you guys are all partaking in drugs as much as you were yeah i think you know the basic idea was sound the, the, the idea initially had nothing to do with x well actually it had a lot to do with excessive alcohol the first the dummy cover had had paul calf on the cover and then the other line the other list of names were all People like Jeffrey Bernard, Oliver Reed, Hurricane Higgins, uh, Keith Richards. Just yeah, there's a pattern there. There's definitely a pattern there. Well, the thing is, the job that I was going to do just before Loaded was I was going to write a book called Fifty Ways to Leave Your Liver, <laughs> and I was collating great drinking stories, and that's what I was researching when that came when you know when the opportunity came up to do it. So, and I was enthralled to the idea of excessive drug and drink use being a, a, a creative you know form of inspiration and, and um you know as you get older you find it's probably not true but you know being at loaded was like being at school again it was it was absolutely fucking great it was it was the funniest time it was the most exciting time it was we had all, one night i was at a party at ali pali I can't remember what it was. It might have been a Stone Roses gig or something like that. It was a big, big after-show party. And I was talking to Robbie Williams, and he said to me, you're all the best parties I go to, James. The difference between our lifestyles is wherever you wake up in the morning, there aren't five guys with cameras pointing them in my face when you leave to go home. And that really was about the best description of my lifestyle from somebody you know who was you know, genuinely, well, you know, certainly front page tabloid famous. He realized I was having all the, the high life and, and, and none of the low life of the paparazzi all after them. The dream. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was so intense. So much was going on that I never felt like, oh, I wish I could keep doing that. I genuinely mean that, you know, some people could sort of try and put a brave face on that. It's not like that anymore. It was, it was so brilliant that, you know, you can only eat cake for so long before you start feeling sick, and nobody takes the memories or the anecdotes away. Um, you know, there was just, it was just an explosion. I think in my book I talked about it being last orders for the century. You know, it was like the mid nineties were like the end of the century, and there's this sense of you know, let's get as much drank as possible before closing time and let's have as much fun. It loaded definitely felt like a second childhood for me, which was also a good thing because, you know, there'd been, you know, my, my mum was ill growing up and she died just before loaded started. And as I mentioned, it was terrifying walking around Leeds with this guy murdering people. Um, So it was, it was kind of like a just an explosion of fun, and anybody who says the nineties weren't all that, I feel sorry for them because they were all that. You know, the football was good, and the the drugs were great, and the and the cheap international plane travel suddenly meant going to Thailand or going to Ibiza or wherever you wanted to go was was suddenly uh, affordable, and there were all these brilliant comedians around, and and I think. You know, the reason that I'm that it was so great was, you know, what I created was was in the thick of that. Yeah, absolutely. I I wonder whether so obviously your journey took you into this world of fame and partying and drugs and drink. And that was I feel like your your addictions, as you describe them, were attached to your work. So, it, you know, that obviously makes it a lot easier. But as a person, as a personality, do you think that would have been something you'd have got into anyway. And, and, and really it didn't matter that you were an editor at loaded and becoming famous. You would have got into drug problems anyway. Well, that's a good question. I've never actually asked myself that. So. Listeners can go and make a cup of tea whilst I'm it over. I, I mean, it's certainly synonymous. I mean, certainly the excessive behavior was synonymous with the success because I was a very functioning addict. And I only really realized that about two weeks ago. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a reason why 
there are reasons why I'm not well known now, and uh, and there are things that I did to make sure that I cut away from from a, a kind of level of of ambition and intensity that that went had gone hand in hand with 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 drugs and drinking for me. So, you know, I chose to take. Can you give an example of those things of something you did to to get yourself out of it like that? Well, like you know, I didn't take the ninety nine thousand pounds Channel Four offered me to go on Big Brother. Or I didn't say I didn't say yes when Hello asked a photographer I knew if he could photograph my wedding. So they were things that I chose not to engage with at the ta- at the time. But I think you know once I'd left Loaded and gone over to GQ and and they helped me go for a rehab. Oh, did they? Yeah, I, I just got involved in a lot of. Um, I just tried to take a different perspective on life, and I wasn't sure that being successful was actually good for me, which is quite strange to be, having been so ambitious out of necessity, to suddenly kind of be thinking, you know, maybe I, you know, I did need to calm down and I, I needed to calm down professionally as well. And I, and I think in a way, um, being honest, I think, you know, I chose not, I was a little bit scared of becoming really successful again. So I didn't want to be taking those. I kind of decided I didn't want to go down that route of, but you know, I miss the action, but I don't miss you know the acclaim and so on. Yeah, it's it must be a dangerous feeling actually to think that potentially those things are interlinked. Yeah, I could totally understand that. Um, you've uh, I saw you've talked about some of the most fun, famous people that you hung out with back in those days. You mentioned New Order, Vic and Bob, the Beastie Boys. But uh, I read a story that you wrote about a night out with Helen Mirren and how that was. Why does that top the lot? What was so great about Helen Mirren? I think she was different to the other people that I'd spent a lot of time with. You know, I was spent a lot of time with a lot of bands that people are totally and utterly in awe of. And, and even more so now, you know, as, as their legends have built over the years. So I wasn't quite as in, I wasn't as in awe of those people as people are now. So I just had a good week and a good few days in Hollywood with Helen and we got on very well. And um, she was just very funny and very honest. And um, I mean, the interview was outrageous, but really quite tragically for the person involved, but quite almost amusing for me is that the intern or the work expert, you know, the assistant who uh, was transcribing its mother got seriously ill and she just left and, and the tape went with her. So I could never write that piece up. But she put some she told me some stories that if if they if I'd published them, they would have been on the front page of the papers, I think. And I've never written about them because I didn't you know, I kind of guess they'd gone with the wind. She was just great, you know. I just really, I wasn't of that generation to who she'd been a pinup. Friends of mine who were five or six years older than me were were just stunned when I said I'd been hanging out with her, or even did indeed when I hung out with a couple of them with her. In she was just great, you know. I like Prime Suspect. She was really cool. She looked like a kind of older version of a woman that I'd been seeing but had broken up with. And, uh, I, I, you know, basically, she didn't really give a fuck. That's what I liked about her. She did. She would say what she thought and she would do what she thought. And, um, yeah, so that, that was, she was on, I mean, you read the article. We went out. She was, she'd had a few drinks and she, I dropped her home at her house and she climbed over this kind of 12 foot elect, electric gate. In a in a hills, and it was funny. And then, like, I thought, oh my God, if she falls now, what am I going to do? I mean, it was really high. It was a really high gate. It was a it was a Hollywood film star, and her husband was a Hollywood director's size gate. And then when it opened, I went right. See her. She got to the other side. She said, "No, no, you can drive me up the drive." I just really liked her. She was she was she was really good fun, and. Uh, you know, I had to go home before I got a crush on her, which was, I think, was a good idea. 
all of these kind of great anecdotes and you know what like you said sounds like your time at loaded and and the 90 the late 90s in general if you're of the right age does just sound like such a great laugh how and then you went on to talk about you know addiction being kind of hand in hand with that time how did you know the mix of fame and um this social life and addiction how did it affect personal relationships so you mentioned you know having just split up with a girlfriend when you met Helen Mirren etc do you think you you lost a lot of good personal relationships off the back of that kind of stuff um well I asked my ex-wife who I get on fine with if for a couple of clarifications on incidents and she said I got no memory at all which was a relief to me she said I James I don't want to be in your book so that in a way was a relief and I think I was thinking I might dedicate my book to the women that had to put up with me because you know I was I wasn't um I was never abusive or anything like that but it must have been quite (laughs) it must have been a little bit of up and down I mean I used to go out on Friday and come back on Sunday sometimes and um not always in the best state, you know. And so I think it was difficult for her, um, you know, it was probably not the best time for me to get married. (laughs) You know, I think looking back on it 24 years on, I think that actually it must have been difficult. But I don't think, I'm trying to think, I I mean, I've got a good relationship with my dad. My kid, my eldest son, knows a little bit about what went on at that time, and um, I speak to the parent. You know, I sp- you know, I know. I mean, it's okay. You know, there's I don't mean, there's many people walking around with huge resentments about how I treated them. But I mean, it, it was difficult to work for me. I think at Loaded because I just I was very young. I was very volatile, and one minute I could be saying the greatest thing in the world that we would all do and be fun and. 10 minutes later, it could be chewing somebody's head off. But How much of that volatile nature do you think came from the fact that you were on drugs most of the time? Well, no, a lot of it came from the fact that my mum had committed suicide two years before. So I wasn't in the best... I wasn't in the best emotional state, you know? I was like... Um, I was already drinking a lot when I was at the enemy and in my late teens. There was just a lot of stuff in the family that, you know, nobody really knew about and... It's only years later I've really been able to talk about it, I think. It struck me the other day when I was writing that, you know, nobody, uh, no one at any point during my time at Loaded, I don't think, maybe one writer who's, who'd had a similar set of situation with a, you know, a, a kind of, um, a, a, a difficult relationship with a parent, but, um, you know, no one ever sat down and say, oh, you know, do you want to talk about that? Or how do you feel about that? Or, oh, it's the anniversary of this or that. And, you know, you just um, now, being my early 50s, mid, mid-50s, I guess now, you kind of, you talk about things, you talk things through. And, and, and culturally, there's a lot more awareness now for men particularly to talk about emotional issues, things that may lead to mental health problems. But it just wasn't like that then. It was just drug yourself better, and um, and so I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't. To answer the question is, I don't know. It, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer. I don't know if I would have used all of that stuff. Probably not, because although it was said in pure um, mirth. When Mrs. Merton said to George Best, George, do you think if you hadn't done all that running around so much, you wouldn't have been so thirsty? That is actually applicable. You know, if you're getting given three or four awards a year and you're going invited to parties every single night for all sorts of different industries, all sorts of different people, there was an awful lot of drinking going on. And when Damon Albarn said, there's a blizzard of cocaine in Britain in about 1995. He was right. For people in and around the entertainment world, it had always been there. But suddenly it was there for people who had grown out of ecstasy, who'd got into drugs because of ecstasy, and then they were using uh, cocaine. And you would walk into a restaurant or a pub or even football clubs, 
And there'd be signs up in the toilet saying the use of cocaine is forbidden. Anybody found dealing it or using it will be expelled, reported to the police. And it was a very, very druggy decade. And um, so I think probably I wouldn't have used as much, uh, to be honest. But, you know, it was I think there was a hell of a lot of people that that were taking a hell of a lot of stuff because of the cultural circumstances. Yeah. I was uh, intrigued that you mentioned that then when you went to GQ, they helped you through rehab. That seems to me something that is more likely to happen now than it would have done then. It seems that seems like quite a rare thing too. How did that come about? Well, my time at GQ is often overshadowed by my departure, but actually a lot of good stuff happened there and um for me personally, there's a lady there who was the head of the uh, HR department who went out of her way to get me a rehab program on the company insurance scheme. And she's a lady called Susanna Amore. And she had done that for quite a few people. I think, you know, there were issues with anorexia and alcohol and, you know, very, very glamorous world. Vogue, Tatler, GQ, fashion. And, and and it was a godsend, you know, it was, you know, it was just brilliant. It was the first time anyone ever asked me if I needed any help, and I did. And, um, you know, people that perhaps don't know this about that world, because it's always portrayed as cutthroat and bitchy and glamorous, but there was an element of it with the guy who hired me, Mr. Newhouse, Jonathan Newhouse and Susanna, they were both instrumental in, in, in making sure that I could... Uh, get over my using really and I went on this you know I started seeing the you know rehab counsellors and it and it, it, it changed my life. For anyone who doesn't know because you mentioned about your departure for anyone who doesn't know much about that what you said you're most well known for that what was the situation there? I haven't really ever talked about this so I, I basically was whacked because we we published a list of the best dressed men and you know quite a few people had suggested German soldiers and that went in as the word Nazis which when you put it with an introduction that says these are the coolest guys around, when you're talking about Brand Ferry or Sean Ryder or David Bowie, or if you've also got the word Nazi, it's just inappropriate. So um, that's what happened. But before that, you know, we'd won our first ever award for five years. I'd, I'd changed the staff. 50% of the staff had been changed. The newsstand circulation was up like by about 50 to huge 50 to 60 percent because they haven't been being honest about how it what it really was at i started the man of the year awards gave jamie oliver his first uh media work and you know so it did a hell of a lot in that time and uh turned the magazine around but you know should have been paying more attention i guess to what went in right and you mentioned earlier about um being volatile in your job and stuff like that. Is that something that you've managed to learn from kind of years later in later jobs and stuff that you regret looking back and, and you'd say you're a different person now? Or is that just a way that you manage people and sometimes it's necessary to get people to tight deadlines and stuff like that? What I've learned is it's it's for me to operate well, it's good to have a really good deputy and to have a really good PA. And, you know... If I was Brian Clough, I do need a Peter Taylor, somebody to calm me down. And, you know, sometimes there's things that I want doing and I'll explain how I want them doing. And another and a good deputy will be able to uh, implement that better than me just flying off the handle. That's that's what I've learned, that 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 using other people's abilities that complement my own make me more effective. Sure. So do you feel in general that you've uh, you've had to deal with quite a lot in your working life people not um work not working up to your standards is it a standards thing or is it just that you you just feel like then they don't listen well enough anything like that i'm intrigued because i've had some management problems in my time before where i've managed people in a way that has upset them and they ended up going to my boss this was when i was running a a youtube channel for Fremantle. but my the people who were working for me went to my boss and said you know we don't think he's managing us well enough and you know i look back on that and think oh actually maybe they needed more maybe they needed more guidance but i don't know i mean i haven't had a proper job for something like 
I don't know what it is, 14 years, you know, when I sold my own business, which we didn't really talk about, but I had my own publishing company from about 2000. Well, when I left GQ, 99, I started it. Then it went in the stock market about 2000. And we sold it about 2005, I think, 2006. And since then, I just was, you know, I worked as a consultant for a lot of very, very big businesses, people like the Associated Newspapers, the Independent Newspaper Group, uh, the Reader's Digest in America, Time Out, Jamie Oliver, um, Sky Sports. That was a really enjoyable job. But And what it enabled me to do was to use my creativity uh, and my kind of editorial vision to be able to fix things quickly. And then it you know, and then set the people on the path to do it. And that was, an, you know, and I like doing that. You know, it's, when I did, when I was a kind of consultant editorial director at Sky Sports, it was a fantastic job. And I went in there editorially for a month and then it was just a meeting every other month or every month. We used to do it at Chelsea's, in their box at Chelsea, have an editorial meeting. And that is an example where there was a very, very good editor there who hadn't really got, the protection he needed from from the from the client Sky, and um, you know I set up a process whereby Sky would be happy with the content, and all the staff there were very happy do it, dealing with it as well. I mean, I do think to answer that question about standards is when you've been at the top of your game, you have expectations of uh, certain standards of ed- editorial ability. I mean, a lot of this Barney, I. Because I never had any, certainly early on when I first became a manager, an editor, a leader, I'd never had any management training. So I used to think about Howard Wilkinson and Brian Clough. You know, I genuinely used to think about how that they mixed younger players and brought through new talent and and, and older players. And um, it sounds sort of strange and cliched, I guess, talking about that. But that is, I would think about football managers and the development and talent and I think the other thing that because I had that door open to me at the NME when I was 20 21 and that I've always wanted to do that for other people and uh, you know the chance to promote people from the lower levels and certainly the chance to find new talent and, and bring them in I mean there's there's nothing more exciting than uh doing an interview process that starts with like 800 applications and then you get 60 that could conceivably do it. Then you get down to 16 that you're going to talk to and then five and then four and then you end up taking one and nobody's ever heard of this person, you know, and they end up being a, you know, a you know film writer or a novelist or whatever. And you've opened that door for them at the beginning. And I've had a lot of that. And I, I, when I was writing about the book, I was talking to Tony Chambers, who became the editor of Wallpaper magazine, but he was the deputy editor. So he was the the art director at GQ. And we were talking recent when I was there, and we were talking recently. And he said, you know, the one thing you did that I'd never seen anyone do was just empower young kids and, and give them the chance and just say, go off and do it. And that was kind of nice that he remembered that because I, that's something that I'd always always kind of try to do yeah no that that is a really amazing thing to have someone tell you i can totally imagine that um i just wanted uh, it's been amazing chat thank you so much i just wondered before whether you uh i know you're writing books now you talked about your uh your book you're currently writing and you had above head height which was great i read that i think i got a name check in it which is great because we play football together but i wonder if you have any other career goals that you're yet to achieve that you want to achieve well people always look at career goals as pinnacles, don't they? I think I think they think of look pinnacles. Or I want to achieve that. I've had like, I've had probably four or five jobs that many people would have happily have for the lifetime, and I've either walked away or got into a position where, you know, it's certainly at GQ I got whacked. Uh, and you know, the guy that took over from GQ after me has been there like twenty odd years, so it's. I've had loads of brilliant jobs. The magazine industry doesn't really exist anymore and probably isn't going to, isn't going to, paper publishing isn't going to survive COVID for a lot of, you know, a lot of titles are going to close. This is going to be an excuse to just make them purely digital and become brands. 
online. Um, I, I don't know, really. That's the big question I always ask myself. What, what do I want to do? You know, do I care? Have I had enough highlights? I, I'm very happy in my life. I like playing football. I love hanging out with my kids. I've got a nice girlfriend. I've, I've got enough money that I don't have to do jobs I don't want to do. I miss the, I miss the action of doing content or doing, you know, the content of a magazine. I miss that. And I miss the creative process. So I guess finding myself in a scenario where I can do that at the financial level, I think I'm worth in an environment that's exciting. I don't know. I may, then again, Maybe I'd just become like, do something important, like become a drug counsellor, which I seem to spend quite a bit of time talking to people with other, with their own addiction problems. So that makes me wonder whether I, I might get more value. The, the, the thing I've got most out of away from professional work is coaching the kids football team that I coached for a few years. And then there's the thing that gives me personal satisfaction, which is just private, is if somebody knows that I had quite a public uh, drug and drink problem, if people contact me and I, I just talk to them and I might point them in the direction of the person who helped me, uh, the, the, the counsellor, or just help them or, you know, just pass on what I had handed to me as help. That's genuinely very, very rewarding. James, I always ask this final question. It's been a great chat. Thanks so much. Always ask this question, knowing all that it entails and with the benefit of hindsight, would you give up your experience of fame if you had the chance? By which I mean you'd have the same life now, you'd have the same experience, the same financial security, same family, but you would just never have been or would never be spotted in the street and no one would know who you were because of fame. Well, nobody spots me in the street and knows who I am anyway. So no, I mean, I... I, I am I think I've had the I've had an amazing life. I've had a uh, an absolutely I mean I could sit and talk tell stories for four or five hours. Sometimes I do. I, I've met loads of really inspiring people. I met lots of my heroes. We got to the point where Hunter Thompson and John Johnny Rotten were ringing the loaded office. I mean that was starting point for me. And for those guys to be called in the office was kind of like very inspiring or t to get to meet George Plimpson and Norman Mailer, people whose writing had inspired me, you know, to, to, to be end up talking to people like that, not to interview them. Um, I've been very lucky in meeting a lot of like people who've done really well and have changed things and inspired me. Um, you know, it was basically just, it was like a boy's own dream, you know, but it just, um, got a little too wild at times <laughs> and that's why I am genuinely personally quite happy being calm now you know I was lucky I didn't die sometimes with the stuff that was going on so yeah you know there was a time I was telling my son this he talked to me about Nirvana I can remember a friend of mine bringing Kurt Cobain to say oh you must come and meet James <laughs> that's when I was 24 25 or whatever it was, you know, when I was on the, on the features editor at the LME. And now to say that was very strange or to tell my son that the reason I learned to drive was because I was in the, the hills in with um, Keanu Reeves saying, do you want to ride on my vintage motorbikes for me and not being able to drive? Um, you know, just, yeah, I mean, my life was sometimes I have to, and none of this stuff I've said to you or none of this, there are no lies in my book. Um, there's lots of things that I'm leaving out uh, to save famous people's sort of faces and stuff. But um, I just, I've had a brilliant time. Not many people get the chance to have three or four jobs that they would do forever. You know, not most people don't even get the one job they dream of doing. Well, I've had three or four, and so I'm okay with that. I mean, I'd quite like to... I'd like to own and run Leeds. I'd like to, but that, you know, Leeds United, but that would be a disaster because I've, you know, I haven't got the money to buy it. <laughs> yeah, well, as long as you, I mean, I'm sure you could do a better job than Peter Ridsdale did. But um, James, do you know what else is rare, I think, is uh, for someone to have had 
your career and also be very open about your your problems but also just look back at it as a real positive and say how lucky you've been and i i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking like that i want to give you the opportunity now to um plug the new book if you like or tell people about uh the the book about five aside that you wrote before or plug anything you want to uh, my audience where can they find you and see what you're doing etc i'm on instagram at james james brown i started putting together a little travel project called at chinook mag which i might develop next year and i'm on twitter at james james brown and i wrote that book above head height which if you've ever played private side football or amateur football there's probably something in there that will amuse you so and then the new book comes out in spring next year and that's about what we've talked about basically it's about publishing about drugs it's about music it's about chaos and infamy it's about me james thanks again so much uh thank you guys for listening to this episode of almost famous please do press that subscribe button rate the podcast and leave us a comment too find us on instagram at almost famous the podcast and on twitter at pod almost famous until next time thanks so much for listening cheers A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.